Good morning. We haven't done it in a couple of weeks. I'm all in. Are you all in? Good. Again, we're a little scattered in what we know to respond. Um, I'm all in, and you respond with, yes, I'm all in. I'm all in. Good deal. I told the first service to give you a hard time because they were more all in because they came at 8.15. And I told them, I said, I'm more all in than all of you because I've been at both. But anyway, we won't compare and contrast. We're going to start with a little quiz this morning. It's fill in the blank. See how you do. The subject is rivalries. Hatfields and... Yeah, y'all better get that one. Cowboys and Indians, right? Texas A&M and... Texas, of course, yes. Ali versus Frazier, yes. And Pepsi versus Coke, yes. Great rivalries are enough to launch fiery debates from even the seemingly mundane, like pigs. You know the history behind the Hatfields and the McCoys rivalry? Legend says that it all started over a stolen hog. Whatever the source Rivalries can grow to a point that they impassion families, cities, entire countries, and it's not unusual to bring this propensity for conflict to our own home, our own soil, even our own soul. Here's another fill in the blank. You versus what? What would you fill in the blank with? An X? former friend, a co-worker, a family member, unreconciled, broken, damaged relationships are as near as the dinner table, and I hope that you're not okay with that. I hope that you understand that as Christians, one of our primary tasks is the business of reconciliation. Remember the WWJD bracelets that were popular back in the 90s? You know, that, uh, that stemmed from a book that was written in the 1800s by a guy named Charles Sheldon. He was a Kansas preacher, and he wrote a book called In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? It sold over 30 million copies. But the whole premise was that Sheldon encouraged his congregation and readers to, to take on was this idea that before you make any major decision in life, filter it through the question, what would Jesus do? I want to ask a different question this morning, and I want to use the acronym WWJU. What would Jesus undo? And I want to start with the walls and the lines of division that we draw. You know, in 1961, the communist government began construction on a wall that would separate East from West Berlin. This wall was constructed so that there would be no interaction between the two sides. And so trains were rerouted and, and, and routes were cut off. The only way you could go from one side to the other is by jumping through a million hoops. It was almost impossible. And many people felt like that this wall would stand forever. But on November the 9th, 1989, you might remember this, the government decided that they were going to take down the wall. 
And both sides were ecstatic. There was celebration in the streets. People got their hammers and their pickaxes, and they began chipping away at the wall that had so long kept them from seeing what was going on on the other side. And we've constructed our own walls, haven't we? We've constructed our own walls, and it's time they came down. But they'll never come down until we're ashamed that they're up. We should be ashamed that we divide over religious scruples. I've talked with many churches, counseled with churches where they've gone through a split. And almost 100% of the time, they'll tell you that that split was caused because of a doctrinal issue. And most of the time, that's not what caused the split. Most of the time, the split was caused by a personality problem, a political problem, or a power struggle. One or all of those things factored in. Oh, they'll tell you it was doctrine, because that makes it set better. But it was one of the three Ps or all the three Ps, power, politics, or personality. We should be ashamed that we divide over religious scruples. We should be ashamed that we have divided over race. Racism is ignorant. And beyond that, it is sinfully arrogant. In Acts chapter 17, we find Paul giving his famous sermon on Mars Hill. Paul is preaching to pagan philosophers and to people who were worshiping idols. And in the course of his preaching, he says these words, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Paul makes the case that God created all races from one man. Now understand that those who were listening to these words felt like that all other races were barbaric. They felt superior to other races. But Paul makes it clear that all races have the same creator and that we all come from the same stock. We should be ashamed that we divide over politics. That should really trouble us. That we divide over such things. I don't care what your politics is. If it causes you to be a jerk, then that's a problem. Because that's one of the first tenets to being a Christian. You know what it takes to be a, a faithful disciple? Well, one of them is don't be a jerk. It's never Christian to be unchristian. Ever. And so we need to, we need to think about how we convey our views and what kind of impact that we have. Are we controlled by an idol? Are we allowing politics to have a stranglehold on our heart? To those folks who feel like that they can't go a second without talking about their politics and railing on somebody that doesn't believe like they do, I would say this to you. Stop it. You're scaring the children. Turn off Fox News, turn off CNN, and go out and serve somebody. Volunteer at the Christian Service Center. Set up a Bible study with somebody. You're teaching our children that we should put all of our faith and trust in politics. And that's not the case. Because you may not want to hear this and you may not agree with it, but it's true nonetheless. The church doesn't need the government. The success of the church doesn't depend on who's in the White House. The first church started in an environment where it never should have gotten off the ground. The first church didn't have the support of the government. In fact, the government was opposed, and yet she thrived. She succeeded where she shouldn't have. There are more Christians in China now than there are in the U.S., and the church must exist underground there. Still, she is thriving. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't have a vested interest. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't vote or that you shouldn't be involved. But you don't change the world through politics. You change the world one soul at a time. Make sure you're concentrating on the right thing. 
Don't be so immersed in politics that you forget what you're supposed to be about. How embarrassing it is for the world to see Christians dividing over things that are not eternal. Remember these? We should be ashamed of ourselves and how we have acted over a piece of cloth. I don't care what your politics are when it comes to to masks. I personally never liked wearing them. Never enjoyed wearing them, and I'm sure you were in the same boat. Some of us put them on because we felt like it was the right thing to do. Some of us opposed it every bit of the way. I don't care about any of that. What I care about is how you act towards others over a mask or anything really, right? We should be ashamed of how we treated our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ over a a mask. Again, it's never Christian to be unchristian. But what happens when an idol gets a hold of your heart is it causes you to act in ways that are unchristlike. Compassion gets replaced with callousness. And instead of seeing your fellow man as a brother, you see him as a bother. Now think about 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4, it says, Love is patient, love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly or disgracefully. It does not seek its own benefit. It is not provoked. It does not keep an account of a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It keeps every confidence. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, anytime someone mentions 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we hear wedding bells. It's the love chapter, and it's most readily uh, recited on Valentine's Day or at weddings, which is totally fine, until you consider that Paul's words here is not a treatise on how uh, a husband should treat his wife or how a wife should treat her husband. Certainly those words can apply, but the context here, the greater narrative, has to do with spiritual gifts. And this may surprise you, but these words come on the heels of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And there he lays some things out for us. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. He says, for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For the body is not one member, but many. And so after Paul establishes the fact that that we are all members of this one body, he then turns to the glue that holds us all together. And he emphasizes agape love and the different aspects of this love. In the process, he shows us just how unique this type of love is and how different it is from the world around us. You know, the world calls a lot of things love and attaches love to a lot of things, but it's not the agape love that Paul is talking about. This type of love is long-suffering. It's kind. It doesn't boast. It rejoices in the truth. It doesn't insist on having its own rights. It can handle anything. And Paul says, this, this is what you're supposed to be. Not this is how you're supposed to love or this is what you're supposed to do. This is who you're supposed to be. Just anytime you see love mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, put your name in there. Put your name in there because this is who you're supposed to be. This is the character that you are to exhibit. It's not just an action. It's who you are. And I want you to notice one aspect in particular among these descriptors of agape love. Notice that it says it endures all things. Wow. So we understand this passage as it applies to a husband and wife. We get it. Most of us love our spouse or at least We understand we should strive to love our spouse in this way. We get it. 
but it's not as sappy and sentimental when you start applying it to people around you. The person sitting in the pew next to you, maybe that person you don't always see eye to eye with, maybe that person that you don't always get along with, that person that doesn't look like you, smell like you, think like you. It's a little different then, isn't it? But this type of love endures all things. All things. Because that's what family does. It does life together. And doing life together means that you put up with one another. Even the nut jobs. Even the cynics. Even the crankheads and the soreheads. Even the vampires. You know who they are? The ones that suck the life out of you. Even those folks. You put up with all of them because we're a family. And family does life together. This is not a corporation. This is a body that loves one another the way that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Family doesn't build walls because Jesus died to remove the walls. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning of verse 11. Again, this is Paul. He writes, Therefore, remember that previously you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who previously were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the hostility, which is the law composed of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two one new person, in this way, establishing peace, and that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household." having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You ever watch those renovation shows like Flip or Flop or Fixer Upper or Flipping Vegas or any of those? They all have three phases, don't they? You have the before phase, where they show what the house looked like in the beginning, where they demolish it, tear it down to the studs. Then you have the middle phase, where the renovation takes place. And then you have the reveal, right? And the reveal is the best part, where you see all the blood, sweat, and tears come together. They've modernized the home. That is where the homeowners bawl and squall because they're once, you know, shack is turned into a palace fit for a king and a queen think of that when you read ephesians chapter 2 this is extreme makeover gospel edition and you notice the before here the before picture has a backstory with it and if you watch those renovation shows they're all the same way there's always a backstory isn't there there's always you know a setup and it's usually you know this family has 12 kids and you know the dad just lost his job and their hamster died and everything's terrible and so they get somebody to help them out to to renovate their house and make everything better i want you to notice something when you think about in the ancient world when you think about the temple 
Think about all the walls that existed. Here's an illustration for you. Look at all the different walls, and some of this you're probably familiar with. You know, you have the, the Holy of Holies, where the priest was only one allowed in. He was only allowed in once a year, so you had this, this curtain or this divider separating the Holy of Holies from the, you know, the rest of the, the place. You have the court of the, the priests, the court of the Israelites. You have the court of the women that were only for Jewish women. You know, way off to the side, you have the court of the Gentiles which if you and I were there living in that day and age, that's where we would be, set apart over here to the side. Imagine coming into our worship assembly, coming here on a Sunday morning, and having all these different walls, all these different divisions. So we have the folks that have been Christians for, you know, 20 years plus, they have their own little place over here to worship. We have the non-Christians who have their own little place here to worship. We would never go for that. And yet, that's what society was like long ago. Not only were there walls in the temple, there were walls among themselves, in their culture. The Pharisees and the scribes, they didn't associate with sinners. There was a wall between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were half-breeds. The Gentiles, they didn't want anything to do with them. There were so many walls separating different class systems, and different people. But look at verses 11 through 13 again. Therefore, remember that previously the Gentiles in the flesh, that's you, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Jesus came to demolish the walls and to build a bridge. That was his goal, among other things, was to tear down the walls that separated us. And with any good transformation, there's always a backstory. There's always a history. And Paul refers to that in Ephesians chapter 2. And he talks about where we came from, the before picture. He gives five descriptors. Separate from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. It's a very dark backstory. It's doom and gloom. It's very bleak. And the folks that were living it were utterly helpless and hopeless, destined for eternal misery. Verse 13 again, but now in Christ, circle those words in your Bible, underline them, whatever. But now in Christ Jesus, you who previously were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. No more wall, no more separation, no more exclusion. You're in the family that you once only got to observe from the outside, you're now a part of. And not only are you a part of this family, you get a seat at the table. Understand what that means. You're no longer hopeless. You're no longer helpless. You're heaven bound. May we never forget our backstory. May we never forget the pain of exclusion, and may we never forget the price of our inclusion. Every day, I remind myself that I am personally responsible for the death of another human being. And it would do us all well to remind ourselves of that. Every single one of you are responsible for the death of another human being. If it were only your sins, it would have been enough to put Jesus on that cross. The blood he shed for me and for you should be more than enough of a motivator to pay it forward. Look at verses 14 through 18 again. For he himself is our peace, 
who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the hostility, which is the law composed of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two one new person in this way, establishing peace, and that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So Paul uses two very powerful descriptors here to illuminate what God has done. He says, made both groups into one and then broke down the barrier, the dividing wall. So Jesus took care of all the the barriers, the division. He took care of it, the law, the commands, the regulations. He, He didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. So there were no longer any barriers. Now we all have access to the kingdom. The doors have been opened wide for all to come in who would do so by his commands. We have the the Father. We have have him. We have the inheritance. Jesus knocked down the wall with the power of his blood so that black, white, Asian, every race, every nationality, every ethnicity is one in Christ. Christ. Lower class, middle class, upper class are all one in Christ. White collar, blue collar, no collar, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Vegans and hunters, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Former gangsters and police officers, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Those who like what a burger, those who don't, we're all one in Christ Jesus. The people who don't look like you or smell like you or act like you or think like you, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Texans and people from other states, we're all one in Christ Jesus. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus not only rescues us, he unifies us. And then comes the reveal. Like I said, that's the best part of any renovation show, right? The finished product. And because of the work of Jesus Christ, the Ephesians, the Gentiles, the strangers, the foreigners, the uncircumcised, which includes us, by the way, they're all now saints. And Paul must have known that I was going to do a sermon on this and use those reality shows, those renovation shows, as as a metaphor because now he shifts the talk and the language to buildings. And notice what he says. So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Paul says that this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which means that all the messengers spoke about of old was building up to this moment. It was laying a foundation. They were building something that could bear the weight of God's kingdom. The promise made to Abraham would stand tall on this foundation. The moment, the moment that this story started, it had an ending in mind. The most important stone in any building, of course, is the capstone, the cornerstone. And that, of course, for us is Jesus Christ. Not only that, he's the crossbeam. He's the lifetime warranty. But this is not 
a house or a building necessarily. It's more than this is a temple. It's a temple, a holy temple that is not like the one that was built in Solomon's day. No, this temple, this temple looks different. It looks like you. And you and you and you. It looks like us. We are this temple, the building that houses the spirit of our Father. We, the people, the church, are the temple. This is extreme makeover gospel edition, and the reveal is a whole new you that has been transformed in the temple of God. And you think about the implications of this. Your heart cannot be divided. It cannot be divided. There are no walls in this temple. Remember the pain of exclusion. Remember your backstory, but also remember the price of your inclusion. Never forget where you came from and never forget where you're going. And let nothing hinder you from being one with God, one with Jesus, one with the church, one with other people, because that's what it's all about. Jesus prayed for this oneness. That's what we should be seeking. Any of you ever seen the movie War Horse? You ever seen that movie? It's a really good movie. And if I got the premise right, it's... It's World War I, you've got the, the Brits fighting against the Germans. And there's a scene in this movie where the opposing armies are in the trenches. They're about to engage in, a, in an epic battle. They're going to be shooting bullets into one another's bodies, skewering each other with their bayonets, filling each other's lungs with toxic mustard gas. But there's a point where the fighting stops and the two sides come together for a brief moment. They come together to help a horse, a war horse, that gets tangled up in barbed wire. Let me just show it to you. Watch this. What's he doing? It's a trap. No, I don't think so. I think he's trying to Scare help. Scare him back into his hole. I thought perhaps you might need these for the barbed wire. That's a very long strand. And when you cut it, it's going to release this and this and this. And they call back rather violently, which I'm afraid will only wound the poor fellow further. You speak good English. I speak English well. We need more wire cutters! The house sings in yonder trench. Delightful. We read, we knit sweaters, and we train our rats to perform circus tricks. Well, if you haven't eaten any more rats, we can always send ours over, because we've more than we need, strictly speaking. And now? I'll take them back with me, yeah? Since I supplied the cutters, the horse is mine. This is fair, no? In a pig's eye, he's English. Plain to see. Oh, you mean because he's so filthy? Because he's so smart. Point toss. Yeah. All right, Fritz, you're on. My name is not Fritz. It is Peter. Peter. I'm Colin. You call it Colin? Heads. 
horse is yours. Remarkable. A remarkable horse. I'm sure you could see what was happening there. The horse gets tangled up in barbed wire, and out of an affection for the horse and wanting to see it saved, both sides come together. Two people from opposing sides come together to release the horse. Now, what you don't see is they immediately go back to fighting. But for a brief moment, the walls came down. The dividing line was crossed so that they could help this poor animal. I want you to think about the different walls in your life. I want you to look at it brick by brick. Consider one brick at a time. That's the only way this thing's going to come down. Consider one brick at a time. Look at that brick. Start with one and address the hurt, address the pain, the heartache, and the bitterness. And then move on to the next brick. Smash it until you've smashed it all. You've torn down the wall and you are one with God, with Jesus, with others. Because that's the goal. That's what we're driving at here. Whatever the walls are in your life that you have constructed, they need to come down. And it needs to start today. So, David's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you this morning, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.